0: We have a brand new book, the book of Bamidbar, the book of numbers. What an incredibly exciting day we are embarking on the fourth installment of the five books of Moses of the Pentateuch of the Torah. And we are beginning with Parshas Bamidbar. And I think this parsha is the parsha that I underwent the greatest metamorphosis, the starkest change with I used to think it was kind of a snooze fest, you know, you're counting the people, how many tens of thousands of people in all the tribes, and the layout of the encampments of the 12 tribes, Judah with Issachar, and Zavulon to the east, and Reuben and Shimon and Gad to the south, and then we count them again, dividing the nation to four quadrants, three in each direction, each one has a particular flag, and they're flanking the camp of God, which is surrounded by the Levites, who are guarding the tabernacle and the camp of God. We count the Levites, both the working age Levites, from the age and, from the age of 30 to the age of 50, and we count even the, the Levites, even the babies, and we count the firstborn, and we swap the firstborn with the Levites, and we delineate the specific responsibilities of the Levites in the transportation of the tabernacle and its vessels, how they were packaged, what they were covered with, who had to carry what. It all seemed to me, at least in the past, very technical and very boring. But over, time I've come to love this parsha and to see how it is the parsha that talks about the greatness and the potential and the opportunity of every individual to achieve their purpose, their potential and their greatness. And last year we spoke about this general theme. It was quite a memorable podcast, at least for me, I actually listened to it again this week, how there are 600,000 souls and the 600,000 letters in the Torah, how every Jew has a corresponding letter in the Torah that's theirs. Every one of us is needed. We're all part of this grand experiment. And this year, I want to share with y'all some developments on this general idea that I gleaned from my reading of the parasha this week. I want to begin with an amazing Midrash about the counting of the people. The Parsha begins, Jewish people are in the wilderness of Sinai. They've been here essentially since the book of Exodus. And God tells Moshe, it's time to count the people. This is not the first time, not even the second time the Jewish people were counted. It's the third time they were counted. And it has a very unusual word to describe counting. Suu, uplift. Or count the Jewish people. And all the commentaries already jump on this. You know, there are a lot of Hebrew words for counting. There's code. there's mispar, there is, there are other words that could have been used, but the word su'u is unusual. So the Midrash, of course, points this out. Why does our partial when it talks about counting the Jewish people, why does it use this unusual word that also means to lift or to uplift? Romamus Rosh, exalt the head of the Jewish people, make great the head of the Jewish people doesn't say. Rather, lift or uplift the head of the Jewish people, count them. What does this mean? So the mitra says something fascinating. It says it's as if a person is telling an executioner lift his head, i.e. decapitate him. When the Torah says, God tells Moshe, go up, lift the head of the Jewish people, that means lift their head from their shoulders, decapitate them. Ain't that a downer? Continues the Midrash. The Almighty is giving us a hint over here. The Almighty is intimating something here. Why does it say lift the head? And the Midrash says something very fascinating, an amazing find. The Midrash has a callback all the way to chapter 40 of Genesis when Joseph was imprisoned. Remember that story? Joseph is in Egypt and he is framed for a crime he didn't commit. He's imprisoned and he ends up with two cellmates. They used to work for Pharaoh, the baker and the butler, the chamberlain, and they have dreams. And Joseph successfully interprets the dreams and he tells the baker in three days, your head will be removed from your body. You will be decapitated. And he tells the butler, you will be restored to your post. And once again, you shall give wine to Pharaoh in his hand. And the midrash tells us that if you look at both the communications between Joseph and the baker, and Joseph, and the butler. In both of them, he uses the same word, siu, lift, or shall lift. Chapter 40, verse 13, this is when he's talking to the butler. He tells the butler, yisa, which is the same root as the word Siu, yisa, Pharaoh shall lift your head and restore you to your post. And then, Six verses later, chapter 40, verse 19, when he's speaking to the baker, he says, Yisa Pharaoh es Roshcha Pharaoh will lift your head from upon you. He will execute you. And your head will be placed on a spike. Says the Midrash, an amazing insight. If we are meritorious, when the verse says, uplift, The Jewish people, it will be like the butler. We will be restored to our prominence. We will be given distinction. We'll be exalted. We'll be uplifted. However, if we are not meritorious, we will all die. And the word Siu uplift, will be interpreted as it was for the baker. Namely, our head will be lifted from our body. We will all be killed. That's what the manager says. Amazing insight. What this opening verse of our parsha tells us, our head will be lifted. Siu, it will be lifted. But the nature of the lifting of our head is to be determined. Will it be uplifted and exalted and brought to prominence like the butler? Or will the se'u be fulfilled as it was to the baker? Will our head be removed? So I think the first takeaway we can maybe say from this midrash is that there is a very stark binary nature of the outcomes available to us. In no option, in no scenario, can we be average. Can we be okay, not too good, not too bad. Mediocrity is impossible. We are either great or we are awful. We are either sand or we are stars. There is no room for mediocrity. So it's as if, the beginning of our Parsha, the introduction of a Jewish people. We have the whole book of Leviticus dealing with the tabernacle and the rituals and the Levites and all the work that needs to be done in the holy ritualistic, so to speak, part of the Torah. Now it's back to us. We're talking to us. And the first thing we're told, your head will be lifted. How will it be lifted? Either like the baker or like the butler. Either you're dead or you have a grand prominence and stature. It's almost like that's what we signed up for at Sinai. At Sinai, the Almighty promised we could be a nation of princes, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Or we could be trampled upon like the sand, like the dust. We could be slaves. We could be subjugated, subjected, tormented on a very low level. And that's how our Parsha begins. Su, so, our heads will be lifted. But the nature of that is up to us. That's the first idea. Now the Ramban has an addendum to this midrash. And he says something fascinating. He says, regarding who else does it say the word suu, or the variant of that word su. We know in Hebrew, one word could be used in multiple different ways, like su or yisa. Misnase are all the same word in in different in different variants, different iterations in a different context. What does it mean we should be uplifted? So the Ramban quotes a verse in Scripture: "L'cha Hashem hamlacha for you Hashem is kingdom. You have the monarchy. Ve'hamisnase l'chol larosh and you are exalted, you are lifted above all." The Jewish people are told, was rosh, your head will be lifted. In the positive side of that equation, we can become similar to God. That's the option. God is, so to speak, lifted above all. We too can reach the absolute peak and be lifted above all. What an amazing way to start the book. We're told as a nation that we're going to become great Let's count them, but we're not just going to count them. We're going to uplift them. And they could become exceptional. They could become people of stature. They could become like the butler. They could become godly. There's also a warning of the consequences of failure. There is a version of this story where your head will be lifted, but it may be removed from your head. And the Midrash has a very interesting postscript that we're going to get to in a little bit. I want to pause a bit and probe this idea. At the very beginning of our book, we're told we must become great, uplifted, stature, you should be uplifted. How do we do that? More specifically, as we mentioned in the past, this book is about every individual Achieving their maximum, their potential, fulfilling their mission. And this is the maddening question that faces all of us. This is the vexing question that's so irksome and bothersome because there doesn't seem to be an easy answer. Throughout our parsha, Moshe gives instructions. And towards the end of the parsha, he takes the Levite families, three different Levite families, And they are given the responsibilities of what they must transport when the tabernacle is disassembled and the nation is in transit. And Moshe tells everyone, hey, this is your job. This beam, this curtain, this socket, this is your responsibility to transport. And on a deep level, it's almost as if Moshe is telling the Levites, this precisely is why the Almighty created you. He wants you to do this job, not your friend's job, this job. Similarly, every Israelite, we have an audience with Moshe and with Aaron, and the Ramban talks about this, we spoke about this in the rebroadcast podcast. Every Jew is given an audience with Moshe. And what did Moshe tell them? Moshe told them what it is that they need to accomplish in life. Moshe guided them and directed them how they could be uplifted how they could become great. Some people had big responsibilities. Some people had small responsibilities. But everyone knew where to put their focus on. But what about us? We too, we read this book and we're told, hey, you're a Jew. You must be uplifted. You must become great. But What do I do? Where is the manual? Where is the guidance? How do I know specifically where to put my focus on? So I want to suggest an approach, maybe several different approaches, based upon some of the things that we discover in our Parsha. So chapter two begins with the layout of the nation surrounding the camp of God, every trio of tribes divided up into four different trios, four different quadrants, if you will, the north, the south, the east, and the west, surrounding the camp. And each one of them has a flag that symbolizes that particular set of tribes. Now, this is really a strange thing to be told about. You know, a flag is nice, but what is the utility of this flag? What job did it do and what significance is there for us? When we read about this thousands of years later, we don't really have a flag. Why is this significant? So Rashi says on the very basic level that each flag was of a distinct color that matched the color of that particular tribe's stone in the breastplate. And therefore, everyone knew where to go. You want to know where your people are? Maybe you go out, you're bike riding, you're gallivanting, having a good time. You want to go back home? How do you know where to go? Look up high for the flag and that will guide you home. If that's all that the flags were about, it would be a glorified signpost, a glorified placard. But of course, there is more. There's a very long Ramban and even a longer Rabbeinah Bachaya that dig into the meaning and the symbolism of the flags. So again, there were four flags and each flag represented three different tribes and the, for each flag was broken up into three different parts, one for each tribe of the trio and each one or each part for each tribe had a different shade, a different color and each one of them also had an image on each one of those sections, meaning that every flag, you have one flag for three tribes but each flag is comprised of three different colors and three different images. So actually, the of Baha'i actually goes through the 12 tribes and the color and the image. So Judah, it was the color of the of the sky, and it had a line in it, and Yisachar was the color. It was blue, and it had... The sun and the moon on it and Zvulon, it was white and it had a boat or a ship on it. And Reuven was red with the jasmine and Shimon was Yarok. I don't know what color that, that is. That's a big question. Maybe it's it's yellow or green. And that had the city of Shechem in it. And Gad was white and black and it had a picture of a battalion in it. And Ephraim and Manasseh, it was on it. So it was black colored and one of them had a picture of an ox and one of them had a picture of an oryx. Benjamin had all the colors put together and it had a Ze'ev, which is a wolf. And finally, Dan was sapphire colored with a snake. Asher was the color of, of light that was illuminated from a candle. And it had a picture of an olive tree. And finally, Naphtali was the color of wine with an image of a doe. Now, what this means is that each one of these flags symbolized your tribe, but more specifically, what your tribe excelled at. So these flags, were told, they guide you as a member of that tribe to know what role your tribe plays in fulfilling the collective national mission. So in the epicenter of the camp, well, that's the camp of God. That's the tabernacle surrounded by the Levites. And these four quartets, well, these four quadrants surrounding the camp and these 12 tribes, each tribe had a different role to contribute towards the collective goal and that's, that was symbolized in the flag. Thus, in effect, when you looked at your flag, it told you two very important pieces of information. Number one, it told you where you live. If you're part of the tribe of Judah, Issachar, or Zebulon, then you must be east of the camp. And if you're part of Reuven, Shimon, and Gad, then you must be south. And you're part of Ephraim and Minashe, And who else goes with them? I forgot for a second. Ephraim, manasseh and Benjamin. Sorry about that. You must be west of the camp. And finally, if you're Dan, Asher, and Naftali, you must be north of the camp. So it tells you one important piece, namely that of the location of where you live. But also it tells you what talents, what skills, what unique gifts your tribe has and you as a member of that tribe you embody because that is what you need to use to achieve your goal. So perhaps we can suggest that even though today we don't have a prophet like Moshe who could tell us, hey, your job is to carry this beam, this curtain, this socket, or fulfill this particular goal. Perhaps we can say that just as was the case with the flags, we can still get a little bit of divine guidance in these two areas, and we could look at where the Almighty placed us in life, what location we're in, what circumstances we have in our lives, what situation we're placed in, number one. And number two, we could look at what skills and abilities the money gives us, so to speak, the images of our particular flag. And those two can tell us what we're supposed to try to accomplish in life. The circumstances, well, who created that? That's God. That's where God placed you. You didn't choose to what family to be born into, to what part of the world to be born into. Of course, there are decisions that you made and you can't blame them on God. But the general circumstances of your life, that is divine guidance. That is where your flag is placed. That's where you are encamped and you're put there specifically for a reason to accomplish a specific goal. The other part of of your particular flag that you have is your strengths. See, discover, learn what your strengths are and try to find a way to use your strengths in the particular location in which your flag, so to speak, is planted. Would you even say today the world is shrinking regardless of what the real estate people tell us? Location is less important. The world has shrunk thanks to the internet and thanks to mass communication, essentially. Your playground, if you will, is the entire world. Our job is to discover what skills we have and see how we can use them to fulfill, so to speak, the mandate that lies at the epicenter of the camp, namely how to use them for God. This is the way to discover how we are going to be uplifted. We're told. Every Jew must know you were here, you were put here to become great, to have distinction, to have stature, to be uplifted, and to avoid decapitation. How do you do that? By following the lesson of the flag, figuring out what steels you have and trying to use those endowed steels that you got from God, the gifts that the Almighty gave you, use that to fulfill the grand national mission or to contribute towards the grand national mission of our people. Idea number one. I want to suggest, perhaps, another approach, also based upon the flags. The Midrash says some astonishing things about the flags. So astonishing... That if I just told you what the Midrash said and I didn't attribute it to the Midrash, you would say, this wallby guy is going nuts. I have to turn off the podcast. He's acting crazy. He's saying such nonsense. That's what you would have said had I told you what the Midrash said without attributing it to the Midrash. Here's what the Midrash says. The Midrash says that when the Almighty revealed himself to the Jewish people at Sinai, he had with him 22 legions of angels, and all of them were bearing flags. Quotes a verse in Song of Songs, Daghul mirvava." revava. is the Hebrew word for a flag, and revava is legions. And the Jewish people get a window into heaven, and they see the angels and their flags, and they begin to covet those flags. And they said, if only we too could have flags like the angels. And therefore, says the Almighty, okay, come to the wine cellar, if you will, which is a reference to Sinai. I'm going to give you the Torah. You are so covetous of the flags. I am going to fulfill your will. And therefore, the Almighty says to Moshe, Go make them flags like they desired, like they lusted after, like they coveted. That's what the Midrash says. But if you read it very carefully, something very perplexing emerges. The way the Midrash structures what happened, what happened was that we saw the flags and we coveted the flags. And we said, we want those flags. And the man says, okay, I'll enable you to have those flags by giving you the Torah. The way the Midrash structures this idea, it's not that, oh, we got the Torah. And as a, like an addendum, as an, as an on, on, on top of that, we got the flags. No, we wanted the flags. And to facilitate the flags, we got the Torah, which is just a crazy thing. The Torah was there to enable the flags. It definitely puts the flags and what they represent in an entirely new light. There's another Midrash talking about flags. And it says that the Almighty loves us so much that he made us flags like the ministering angels. So we should be distinct like them. Moreover, it's a sign of love between us and God. It symbolizes that we are forever loyal to him. Quotes another verse. This is also from Son of Sons. Diglu again for the word of dega, which means a flag. We're flagging, so to speak, God with love. And he brings us to the house of wine. Says the Midrash, a parable. There was a really wealthy person who had a cellar full of barrels of wine. And he went in there and he started to inspect it and all the wine turned into vinegar. or all soured. He's about to leave the cellar and he finds one barrel that's still good wine. And he says, this one, this barrel is so beloved to me like all the other wine in this cellar that turned into vinegar combined. So too, the Almighty has created all these nations, 70 nations, and they all soured. They all soured on God. They all rejected Him. But the Jewish people, we remained steadfast in our loyalty to Him. And He loves us like that homeowner, that that wine owner loves that barrel of wine. And finally, the last ministry I'm going to share with you tells us something so striking. You wouldn't believe it. It says like this, the Almighty says, in this world, you were covetous, you were desirous of flags, and I acceded to your request, and in the future, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to save you in the merit of the flags. You are not going to be deserving of being saved, but I'm going to skip over, so to speak, all the prerequisites I'm going to jump to the end because of the flags and I am going to save you if we read this sampling of midrash it's no longer a possibility for us to say that the flag is just there as a utility as a placard as a signpost there's a lot of power here to these flags the question is why Why are these flags so desirous, so covetous for the Jews? How does it make us akin to the angels? How does it display our unending and unbending and unyielding loyalty to God? And why is this the reason that we are going to be redeemed? So I want to maybe suggest another approach. That's going to explain to us what is so special about flags, and also how it can be very helpful for us to figure out what it is that we need to accomplish in our life. So what's a flag? What's the power of a flag? What's the symbolism of a flag? I want to suggest that a flag, it bears all that a people, that a nation, that a country stands for. All of the people, all of the citizens, the history of the nation the ups and downs, the suffering of a nation, all that is coalesced into one symbol, the flag. With a flag, a nation is not just a collection of disparate individuals. Every individual is united into the whole. And the individual flag bearer is again not an individual. He represents, he or she represents the entire nation that person, has standing within the whole nation. When the American flag is planted on the moon, every American feels like they put a flag on the moon. They have a sense of pride. When an Olympic athlete with an American flag patch on their jersey, when they win gold, we all feel like we won. When we beat the Russians in Lake Placid, the miracle on ice, that resulted in a national swelling of pride. The flag unites us under one national mission. The flag captures our national identity in one symbol. Moreover, it allows the individual to represent so much more than a single person. You know, there's only one General Washington. You and I can't be George Washington, or for that matter, any one of the Founding Fathers. But when you raise the flag and you declare, I'm an American, and just for our sizable international listenership, George Washington was the founding father of the United States, the first president, and in my opinion, the greatest president of the United States. And therefore, I know this is a very American-centric part of the podcast, but uh, I guess if you're French uh, or if you're Canadian, the great heroes of Canada... The great titans who built Canada, I don't know, is that Pearson or Trudeau, whoever it is, or uh, Bolivar, whoever, you just put in your national hero in exchange for Washington. But anyhow, back to our point, I'm not George Washington, you're not George Washington, but when I carry the American flag, a person gets bound to the people who established this nation. A flag is a symbol that incorporates hundreds of years of collective history and accomplishments and achievements and triumphs into one symbol. The flag connotes a certain identity. What happened at Sinai? At Sinai, the heavens parted and we saw the angels surrounding God, legions of angels surrounding God with flags. And we coveted that. What did we covet? What we coveted, what we desired, is an identity that's manifested by the flags. It's an identity of the angels. The angels have complete fidelity to God, and we wanted to be the nation of angels. And therefore, the mighty gave us the flags, i.e. everything that we need to become a nation akin to angels, we got. The Umayyad gave us the Torah, which makes us like angels. What we wanted is the end relationship. is that identity of being that one nation that represents God in this world. That's what we wanted. We wanted the flags. But the flags symbolize the identity that we chose at Sinai. The flags symbolize our nation's choice to become the people of God. To become the people, so to speak, that are like angels. And that's why we got Torah. When all the other nations soured, they became like vinegar. We maintained our identity, and we remained steadfastly committed to God. This is the symbol of our national identity. And because of that, might says, I love you. And no matter how far you go, that identity remains, and that's why I'm going to redeem you. And we'll step over some steps if needed. The flag symbolizes the Jewish identity, the Jewish idea, that transcends individuals, and even when we're not at our peak, we are still bearers of that flag because these flags represent our national identity as being the people who chose to be like angels and to exist with complete submission, subjugation, and fidelity to God. Let's get back to the vexing question of finding our mission. How do we know what we're supposed to do? How are we supposed to achieve our greatness? So, lift up your head. How do you do it? Here's the answer. You can attain greatness. You can achieve stature and prominence and renown. How do you do that? By remembering that we are flag bearers of that greatness. Meaning... There's something that our nation has that no other nation has. And that is we accepted the responsibility that is embodied, that is captured, that's personified by this flag. And today, after Sinai, after being forged as a nation, we already have something within us that is true and alive and extant. Even if we don't know it. And our greatness is not something that we achieve, that we get as if it exists outside of us. The truth is, our greatness is baked within us. It's the flag, so to speak, that our nation embodies. And maybe we lose it over time, maybe we forget about it over time. But the mighty promises, this is why I'm going to redeem you. Today we don't have flags. But what the flags represent is still present. And if we want to get it, all we need to do is look within us, within ourselves. It's within us. We don't have to get it from outside. We could drive ourselves mad thinking, oh my gosh, there's something out there that I have to do, that I have to get, There's some greatness I have to go out and achieve. Not so. It's a restoration. We had prominence. It's buried within us. We have to unearth it and bring it to the surface. The Midrash told us that the paradigmatic example of being uplifted is the cupbearer, the butler, a pharaoh. Who was this person? This is a person who was in pharaoh's service as a butler, as a cupbearer, but was demoted. And Joseph says to him, you will be restored to your post. Says the Midrash, that is what it's telling us. It's telling us that we once were that nation. Maybe we lost it. But we will, once again, re-attain that stature that we had because we had it and we're just going back to where it was. We'll be restored to our post. There is greatness that was designated for us in the beginning, already in the past. It's not something we have to go out and find. It is imminently within us already and God knows that and that's why he says I love you no matter what your wine doesn't sour and I'm going to redeem you I want to say one more point before we sign off here I know this is going to get long and it's already more complicated than it should be so forgive me for that that's what happens if I record the podcast on Thursday I should have done it on Tuesday it would have been over like 20 minutes ago so forgive me for that So once we know what it is we need to accomplish, either because we look at the flags and say, okay, the flags tell me what skills I have, or we look at the flags and say, I already have it within us, within me, got to find it within me, got to restore it, I got to preserve it, but I have it already. You know what it is you need to accomplish. You know how to achieve your stature to be uplifted, but it's difficult. It's hard. Life is designed to be difficult. And I would be remiss if I did a podcast on Parshas Bamidbar without quoting my favorite Rashi. I had to find a way to weave it into the podcast. So Moshe is tasked with counting the Levites. Unlike the Israelites who are counted from the age of 20, the Levites are counted as babies from the age of 30 days old. And Moshe complains to God and says, How can I count? How can I count them? can walk into every tent and count how many suckling infants there are. And God responds to him. I say, you do your job, but let me do my job. And Moshe went and counted as many people as he could. And the people that he couldn't do, God filled the gap. And God told him prophetically how many babies there were in that tent. I think once we establish point number one, that we must become great, and point number two, how to discover what it is that we need to do, we have to go to point number three. And that is that there's a critical aspect of achieving our greatness, and that is to know that we have God on our side. It's not us as an individual, a man with a mission. It's a man with a mission, a man or a woman, with a mission, but you have the Almighty and the full force of the Almighty's help to aid you. And you have to do your part. And don't worry about God. He will do His part. If it's impossible for you to do, that means you have to do whatever's possible, and whatever's impossible, that's not your job. That's God's job. You do your job, and don't worry about Him. If you do your job, He will do His once you are given a task, once you are given a job, it is eminently doable because there are parts of it that you can do and there are parts of it that you cannot do, but you must do your part and let the parts that you cannot do be done by God. He is your wean man. He's there to help you. And if you forget that and you think that it's you or me, and the strength of your hand, and that's what's accomplishing this, then you are doomed. Because inevitably, there's new parts of your mission that are going to be impossible for you to do. And on that, Rashi tells us, our parsha tells us, we have to do our job and not God's job. Leave that to him. But if you think it's all on you, then when you encounter insurmountable problems, you give up, you forfeit, you flounder. Because after all, it's impossible. So part of this idea that we are flag bearers is to recognize that God is on our side. And we need to know that we only need to do our job and not his job. Let's get back to the midrash. Remember, I told you there's a postscript at the midrash. There's an addendum to the midrash. Here's the addendum. The parsha tells us, count the Jewish people, se'u, uplift them. What does that mean? Says the midrash, it's one of two things. Either you're going to have prominence and distinction and stature, or your head will be removed from you. You'll be decapitated. What actually happened to the people involved? The people who were counted. Which one of those options did they end up with? Says the Midrash. Surprisingly, perhaps, they were all decapitated. Unfortunately, like the baker in the analogy from Genesis, their head was removed. And the reason is because every single one of these people who were counted, with the exception of just two people, Joshua and Caleb, with the exception of those two people, every single person who was counted, every Israelite, that is, because the Levites weren't counted till later. Every Israelite that was counted actually died in the wilderness and did not make it to the land of Israel. And therefore, unfortunately, they chose the path that resulted in them getting decapitated. I think if we studied this story, we'll discover something fascinating. They were decapitated. They ended up dead in the wilderness. They did not make it to the promised land, to the holy land, to the land of Canaan, the land that we today call the land of Israel. Why did they deserve that? Why were they condemned to all die in the wilderness? Why were they decapitated? What was the sin that triggered that, if you remember? We're going to read it in a couple of weeks. It was the sin of the spies. Moshe sends a bunch of spies, one from every tribe, to go scout out the land. And they come back with a damning report. And everyone freaks out. We cannot conquer the land. It's impossible. The cities are so fortified. The people are so strong. Their military is much mightier than ours. And everyone starts crying. Let's go back to Egypt. What's going to be? And says the Almighty, they went, scouted out the land for 40 days. For every day, they're going to be punished with one year in the wilderness. Forty days down at the land will result in 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So why were the Jews condemned to die in the wilderness? It was precisely because they forgot this lesson. They forgot the credo, the mantra, the motto, do your job and don't worry about God's job. You do your job. And let the insurmountable impossible problems. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. Let him do his job. They came to the land and they discovered that it was not conquerable by their army. And you know what? They were correct. They were right. They accurately assessed the situation. They were a hundred percent accurate in saying that we cannot conquer it. But what they forget. They forgot that every mission has two parts: your part and the part that belongs to God, your wingman. You must do your job, let him do his. They forgot that, and therefore they were decapitated, just like counting the suckling Levites conquering Canaan against the formidable Canaanite nations was impossible, but it's not our job; it was God's job, and forgot of course it's totally doable. And they forgot that, and therefore they were decapitated. So the lessons that we discovered in our parasha are manifold and profound. Number one, we're told, Si'u es Rosh, uplift, lift the heads of the Jewish people. We cannot be average. Our heads will be lifted one way or another. And we have to figure out, it's our mission, to figure out what it is that we must accomplish in our life. We suggested two ways to figure that out, both taught to us by the flags. Once we know where we are in life and what gifts we have, the two lessons that were conveyed to us by the flags, we have to strive to use those gifts to fulfill the will of the Almighty, i.e. the will of the camp of God that lies at the center of the camp. And there was another idea that we shared, and that is that we already have the greatness within us. And We have to preserve it and restore it, maybe fan it, so to speak, fan those flames, discover the greatness that we already have. We don't have to drive ourselves crazy to look from without, so to speak, to look outside, it's within us. And once we internally discover what it is that reflects our greatness, the flag bearers that we are, once you know that, you save that, you preserve that or at least you remember that, and that's enough to make sure that the Almighty says, you're great, you're cherished, you're desirable, you're unspoiled wine, I'm going to redeem you no matter how far you may have strayed. And finally, once you know what it is that you need to accomplish, we have to remember part of that job is God's, not ours. Let Him do His job and let us worry about our own. I know this was a long podcast, multiple approaches. Lots of important ideas and principles. I have a feeling that this, that this is one of the podcasts that can benefit from a second listen. But of course, that is your choice. Okay. Let's get to this week's A and Q. And here's the question. Towards the end of the parsha, Moshe tells the three Levite families what it is that they must transport. When the tabernacle is disassembled and we are moving, the tabernacle is itinerant. Every family is given responsibilities of what they must carry and transport. So we read something really interesting in chapter 4, verse 7. It's talking about the table. Upon the table of the showbread, they shall spread a cloth of turquoise wool and place upon it the dishes, the spoons, the pillars, the shelving tubes, and the constant bread shall remain on it. We're told that the table, the shulchan, has in it the showbreads. And the showbreads, they stay on the table even as it is being transported. Fast forward to verse 13. They should clear the ash from the altar, this is the outer altar, and spread a cloth of purple wool upon it. And place upon it the utensils, the firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins. And Rashi tells us something very fascinating here. Rashi tells us, this again is verse 13 of chapter 4, that there was a fire upon the altar. And the fire was not extinguished for the transportation. Quite the contrary. The fire was still there. It was crouching like a lion, we're told. And they would cover it with a, like a plate made out of copper so it doesn't ruin the curtains that are used to transport the, the vessels. So here's the question. We have at least two examples of the transportation of the tabernacle and its vessels that the ongoing operations, if you will, are being perpetuated and maintained. The bread is on the table as it's moving. The fire is on the altar as it's moving. It's crouching like a lion. And the question is why? Why must the operations of the tabernacle be ongoing, so to speak, even when they are traveling? If you have an answer, send me an email. Rabbi, will be at gmail.com. Last week, we asked a question about the tithing of the animals. You have a bunch of animals in a pen. You open up a small door, and every tenth one of them, you strike with a large red paintbrush and that becomes the one that's dedicated for God, that is the tithe. And we suggested maybe there's another way to do it. Maybe you could actually flip it around. You give the first nine, you hit them and you brand them and you color them and the last one is untouched and that's the one that goes to God. So I got several answers, all of them that I loved, but here's the idea that I want to share. To become holy, we have to be willing to accept a certain degree of pain. We have to forfeit something. Failure, if you will, of some sort, or at least forfeiting something, forfeiting a comfort, forfeiting a pleasure, forfeiting a way of life, forfeiting something is not incidental to greatness and holiness. It is what creates it. So an interesting idea to kind of bring this home. We are designed naturally that no matter how much money we have, no matter how much power shall we say we have, no matter how much physical or material accomplishments we have, we always want more. That's the way that we're designed. Whereas with holiness, whereas with matters of spirituality, it's the opposite. We always feel, you know what? I got enough. I studied enough Torah. I did enough mitzvahs. I prayed enough. I gave enough charity. We always feel like with spiritual matters, we've done plenty. Physical matters, with material matters, with matters of the body, it's never enough. With matters of the soul, okay, we've done plenty. And what happens? We accomplish something. And we feel like, you know what? I did enough. I accomplished enough. I've succeeded enough. Let me start coasting spiritually. And what happens? What does he might do? He might tries to get our attention. He might tries to wake us up. He might take something and strikes us and we stumble and we fall and we feel pain and we feel confusion. But what that does is it breaks us out of a pattern of stagnation, out of a pattern of stasis and inertia, and coasting, so to speak, with what we have. And we fall. And sometimes we fall physically, sometimes we fall financially, sometimes we fall spiritually. But that fall shakes the box, shakes us out of our comfort zone, and that allows us to rebuild and to grow anew. And thus, sometimes we actually fall, and we fail, and we flounder, and we suffer, and that's actually beneficial for us, because we can grow as a result. But this is a very powerful idea. If you are, there's 10 maybe animals here. If there's 10 animals in the pen, one of them is going to be holy. But you know what? It will have to endure something. Something will have to endure to achieve that. And the people or the animals, shall we say, in the proverbial example, the ones that don't endure anything, if you go through life and you feel no pain and no resistance, I hate to say it, but you're never going to become great. Almost proportional to how much toil and investment and pain we're willing to endure, that is the degree of holiness that we attain. And by the way, this is not only with matters of spirituality and everything in life. No pain, no gain. If you're not covered in red, shall we say proverbially, if you haven't invested a lot, if you haven't endured some pain, you will not achieve greatness. Thank you all for listening. This is Rabbi Yakov Volbi coming to you from the Torah Center in Eastern Texas. I thank you for listening. Have an amazing Shabbos. Best regards. Take care. Send me an email, rabbiwolby at and I look forward to speaking to you, please God, next week.